Well, if you will, you can open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And over the last three weeks on our introduction to the Gospel of John, we've looked at the Apostles' attempt to show us who Jesus is, and rather than getting bogged down in genealogies or in ministries, he begins by affirming that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh. Between 14 and 4, there is an introduction to John the Baptist, and following verse 14 through the end of that section, there's a little bit more of a reference to the life of John the Baptist. But John isn't really concerned about dishing out all the details on John's life. Remember that the Apostle John is speaking to those who were still following John the Baptist, who were touched by his ministry, who believed that he might be the actual Messiah. In fact, if you remember, it was well into the second century that John the Baptist still had devoted followers all through the area. So John the Apostle is speaking to those who would still have some kind of infatuation with the messenger rather than the one to whom he spoke. So by way of introduction, as we look at the life of John the Baptist, I wanted to go back to the Gospels of Luke and Matthew and remind us of who John was and where he came from and how he arrived to be the messenger or the forerunner of the coming Messiah. So we read in Luke 1, 7, that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Now, Elizabeth was very old and Zechariah was a priest in the temple and they had gone their whole lives and didn't have a single child. And I would imagine it was a bit of a frustration to them wanting to love a child, to direct this child to the Lord, to pass on their faith as most of us long to one day have children in our homes. Of course, then they grew up to be teenagers and we wonder, what the heck were we thinking? Isn't that right? But nonetheless, we desire to have these children. And so one day while ministering in the temple, Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says that you are going to have a son. In verse 12, we learn that Zechariah was terrified at the appearance of Gabriel and the message that he was to be given. And the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And what is not uncommon for us is to doubt the very word of God. So Zechariah began to question, how in the world could this happen? We're both advanced in years. I just saw this thing, but how can I believe this thing that I've just seen and I have heard? And so he was mute because of his doubt until John the Baptist was eventually born. As you remember, when Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy, Mary visited her, and John the Baptist, who was still in the womb, jumped at the sound of Mary's voice. At his circumcision, John the Baptist was officially named, and Zechariah's mouth was opened, and he began to speak the praises of of God. As Zechariah began to tell the people, we read in Luke 166, and all who heard them kept in mind saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with them. There was a miracle going to take place in their midst, and the people were wondering, Who is this child going to be? What is he going to be like? And what is his role going to be? What is very unusual is that after this miraculous birth, John the Baptist drifts into obscurity until 
he begins his public ministry. We read in Luke 1.80, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, I would, wonder, I would guess, rather, that perhaps the people who wondered what was going to come of John the Baptist probably forgot about him. He lived the life of a wilderness kook. He wasn't in the city. He wasn't with the family. He was out doing his own thing, I would imagine, as the Lord had led him. And then about the, about the age of 30, he begins his prophetic ministry. Now remember, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So we read in Luke chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So the reference here to Caiaphas and Annas is a bit of a dating of when John began his ministry. So John, who has been out on the wilderness, living the life of a wilderness hippie, if you will, dressed like Elijah, eating like the poor folk would. We read this in Matthew chapter 3. John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Regardless of what we think the basic attire was of the people of this era, John the Baptist would have stood out very significantly. There would have been no doubt about this guy being different from everybody else. And so... John the Baptist now appears onto the scene. Israel has been waiting for a prophet for nearly 400 years. God had been silent and they continued to wonder when, when, oh when, God will you speak and when will you fulfill your promises. So John shows up and he begins to preach. It is dynamic, it is forceful, and it created tremendous interest Within the region. Matthew 3 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So he had captured the attention of the people with his appearance and with his preaching. And his message was very simple repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's ministry only lasted about four to five months before Jesus appears on the scene. But it is a very powerful period in the history of Israel. And it is very likely that in John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 37, would be at the peak of John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus had already likely been baptized and was just coming out of his wilderness temptation. And now the paths of John the Baptist and Jesus are about to cross. So our passage today is very lengthy. It's divided into three sections. It is each day, each group, and each emphasis. And because it's a lengthy passage of Scripture, we're going to read these as they are grouped. Now, as you look at this and the amount of Scripture we're going to cover, don't lose heart. The first section is very long and detailed. The last two are not so much. Just let you know in advance. So the first day, the first group, and the first em emphasis, we find this in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Here's what the Word of God says. This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, No, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. 
Then, he, then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? In verse 23, he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So this passage here that we've looked at constitutes a very brief portion in the testimony and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so John the Apostle is introducing to us what took place as John's ministry was at its peak and as Jesus was about to be entered into the scene. So we have the first day, the first group, and the first emphasis. The first group we have, verse 19a, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the first group that we have are the Jews. These are the religious leaders. Now, the great collective leadership of the Jews was called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was divided up into other groups, primarily the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But amongst that group, there were other people who still had very important roles within the life of the temple and the ministry to the Jewish people. So the second part of this group would be the priests. The priests are the theological authorities. These are some of those that ministered in the temple. They offered up the sacrifices. They performed the ceremonies. But they also lived amongst the people as experts in religion. So if you had a question or a problem, you would likely seek out a priest who was going to be able to help you figure out the question that you had. Now, the last group that we have here are the Levites, and these are assistants to the priests, but they are also temple police who provided security for the priests. Now, I don't know why they needed priests to be secured in that way, but that was the role that the Levites had. So that's the first group. So what are they concerned about? Well, they're concerned primarily about, number one, his message. His message was very simple, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But John, just like Jesus, would also speak very different words to this religious leadership because of what they had been doing to the people in the way that they led them because they really weren't leading them to the throne of God. They were, they were binding them up with all kinds of traditions and legalities. They were not helping the people to worship and obey the law of the Lord, but instead were burdening them with something that was even more difficult than the basics of the law. So his message was not only repent for the kingdom of God is hand, but we see a little snippet of that in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what it says in chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, that he is John the Baptist, and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound familiar? 
Can you hear in your mind Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers? Can you hear Jesus talking to His disciples, unless you bear fruit, you have no part in Me? So John is speaking not only a message of come and repent, but he is also laying down the line for this religious leadership who did not truly love the Lord and honor the Lord and obey the Lord, but took their privileged position as something to hold over the masses because they thought they were better than everybody else because of that role. So John's message was simple, but it was also very convicting to those who really weren't about the repentance that was necessary in coming to the Lord. Number two, they were concerned because of his popularity. There had not been anybody in years that had garnered this kind of attention within the nation of Israel, but this guy coming from the wilderness dressed in camel's fur and eating locusts and wild honey, he shows up and he's like a magnet for the needs that everybody has spiritually. We read in Luke chapter 3.15, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So there was a great deal of interest in this John the Baptist and what, what was he doing and what was going to become of him and could he possibly be the long-awaited Messiah? So the religious leadership was very concerned, not only about what it was he was saying, but about the way the people were responding to him and following him. Now remember, John had a very significant following that lasted well into the second century. So their concern was very well founded. So let us see, what is it that they want to know about John the Baptist? Well, they're going to ask five questions beginning in the last half of verse 19 through verse 22. And the central question they have is, who are you? It's a little bit more than just being inquisitive. There's also a tone of condemnation because of what John is doing, and he doesn't fit into the mold or into the box that the religious leadership had established for the nation of Israel. He didn't fit their expectations of a Messiah. So, in a sense, what they're really asking is not only who are you, but who do you think you are? Boy, you got a lot of nerve showing up, dressed the way you are, eating like you do, saying these things about us, to us, in the presence of these people. Who do you think you are? And before they press the issue any further, we read in verse 20, and he confessed, John the Baptist confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Almost as if he could read their hearts just as Jesus would when he began his ministry. John knew where they were going and he cut them off at the pass and said, I am not the Christ. The next question comes in the first part of verse 21. Are you Elijah? You kind of dress like Elijah. You look like Elijah. You eat like Elijah. You know the old saying, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, sounds like a duck, might be a duck. Well, he had the appearance of Elijah, and so they were wondering, well, if you're not the Christ, well, perhaps you are Elijah. You see, they were aware of the prophecy that was given in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there is this figurative Elijah, and there is this literal Elijah, right? So, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17... As we look back at what was said about John the Baptist, prophetically, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John's mission. John's mission was to make people ready to receive the Messiah when he came. He was not the Messiah. He was not a literal Elijah. He was a figurative Elijah who came in the spirit and the power that was exemplified through his life. So when being asked, if you are Elijah, have you come back from the dead? Has God raised your bones and put flesh back on you? Are you really Elijah? He says, no, I am not. At least not literally Elijah. But we would read much later in the ministry of Jesus as He's speaking to His disciples in Matthew chapter 17. And His disciples asked Him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You should remember the terrible way that John the Baptist died. Here is this man of God who was the forerunner and the messenger of the impending coming of the Messiah, who lived a life of morality and righteousness that was foreign to the people, and at the whim of a carnal king, had his head cut off at the desire of a wife. It's a terrible tragedy that comes to this man who was so well loved and respected that his life ends in this way. Well, John the Baptist had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he was calling the nation back to repentance and to obedience, but he was not a literal Elijah. Third question they ask is, are you the prophet? Now, I capitalized the because there was some unofficial teaching that had taken place within the religious ranks that gave the idea that there was some magnificent prophet that was going to come, that was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. They had forgotten the words of Isaiah. They missed the cue that John the Baptist was this prophet. And so John answers their question and says, No, I am not the prophet. Verse 22, the fourth question. Who are you so we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet then who are you? Tell us who you are. We want to know. Well, as we think about the answer to that question, we remind ourselves, what was John's purpose? What was John sent to do? He was sent to announce the coming of the Lord. He says, in effect, that I am nothing. I am a nobody. I am not important. I only have one purpose. My purpose is this. I am the messenger and John the Baptist will go to great lengths to reinforce that position throughout the remaining parts of our passage. And so we read in verse 23 this quote, and he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. This quote here from Isaiah is one of the few phrases that is found in every single gospel account. As Paul considered himself to be the least of all the apostles, John the Baptist considered himself to be the least of all the prophets. Only here to do the will of God, 
the very specific purpose that his barren parents were gifted a child to do, and that is to announce the coming of the Lord. So in verse 25, they asked the fifth question. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, what gives you the right to baptize people? Now, for you and I, when we think about baptism, we don't have the same kind of a mindset that the Jewish people had about baptism. Baptism was instituted for Gentiles who were going to convert to Judaism, and it was a symbolic cleansing spiritually that would make them acceptable to be a part of the Jewish faith. But for the most part, baptism was unheard of within the Jewish ranks. Gentiles weren't beating down the doors of the temple saying, what do I got to do to join your group? Tell me where I got to go. Tell me what I have to do. They weren't asking those questions because nobody wanted to follow the religious traditions that the religious leadership had bombarded their people with. But the Old Testament did speak of spiritual cleansing in connection with the Messiah's coming. Zechariah 13.1 In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. You know, so many times the Jews would read something in the past that had been written, something prophetic, and they would completely misunderstand what it meant. So much so that when it was standing at their door, they couldn't see it, they didn't understand it, and they would just blatantly reject it without ever giving it any serious consideration. So there is this Old Testament preview of this baptism that is going to come that is going to be necessary for the nation of Israel. So the people listening to John the Baptist recognized their need for cleansing. They were repenting. They were going down to the Jordan River. And he was baptizing lines of people. And everybody noticed that. And they were curious what gave him the right to do this. John's baptism prepared them for the coming of the Lord, a people who were repentant and expectant and ready to follow their Messiah. So now we come to letter D, the very first emphasis on this first day, and it is very simply this, prepare your hearts, the Messiah is here. If you look at verses 26 and 27, after John has been asked these questions about who he is, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not unworthy to untie. John is saying, I am a nobody. Don't pay any attention to me. But you better get ready for the one that's coming after me. He is so great and so majestic and so holy that I am not even willing to untie his sandal from his foot. You remember when Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized, John said, I don't think I'm ready to do that. I'm not worthy to do that. Can somebody else baptize you, Jesus? Can you baptize yourself? John was reluctant because he recognized who the Messiah really was in his own position within God's plan. The coming of John the Baptist would not initiate a political, a military, or an economic deliverance, but a spiritual one. 
Somehow John understood that, and he was not worthy of untying the sandal of the Messiah who was about to come. Now, let's turn our attention to the second day, the second group, and the second emphasis. We're going to see this in John 1, 29 through 34. And here's what the Word of God says in this passage. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So this second day brings about a second emphasis spoken to a second group of people. So who is this other group of people? It doesn't really indicate, but based upon the other gospel readings, it appears that these would be followers of John the Baptist. There's no mention of the Pharisees or any other religious leadership that is there. So these are likely the ones that John is baptizing or has baptized, those that are following him and consider consider themselves to be his disciple. As he is doing his thing, he sees Jesus coming towards him. And based upon the other gospel accounts, likely completing, completing the 40 days of temptation and having been strengthened by God, he is ready now to begin his public ministry, which is initiated or inaugurated, rather, at his baptism. So this is the group that John the Baptist is likely saying these things to. So the second emphasis here, letter B, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. There he is. This is the one, it is the Lamb of God, the one to whom we have looked for all of our lives to appear, and man, He's finally here. This is the guy. But they wanted a military conqueror. And God sent them a lamb. They wanted a prophet, and God sent them a lamb. They wanted a political king, and God sent them a lamb. Not what they expected. Not what they were longing for. They wanted to have the yoke of burden from the nation of Rome cast off of them, and they wanted to go back to the glory days of David, but God sent them a lamb. The Jews knew the significance of the lamb. A lamb was used in sacrifice. A lamb was synonymous with sacrifice. Sin could only be covered with the sacrifice. We read this in Leviticus chapter 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you so on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is by the blood, by reason of the life that makes atonement. So God instituted a sacrificial system for the nation of Israel, and they were going to slay the lambs as a temporary atonement for their sin. There was no forgiveness for the nation of Israel apart from sacrifice. We see this in the lamb at the Passover feast. We see the lambs who were being sacrificed daily in the temple. We see the sin offerings made by individuals in the killing of a lamb to atone for their sin. And God made it clear 
that these would not take away their sin. It was a temporary covering. It was not an erasure of the sin of the people. Isaiah 1.11 reads like this, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. What God wants is obedience. What God wants is repentance that leads to following Him first and only. So these sacrifices were a temporary covering for a later permanent provision for the sin problem. A lamb was synonymous with sacrifice, and sacrifice was synonymous with sin. And the Old Testament is filled with the sin problem. What began in the fall and the Garden of Eden has spread to all mankind to such an extent that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. God gave a law, but the law of God was not a cure for the sin problem. It only exposed the severity of the sin problem, and that problem was insurmountable. There's no amount of sacrifice that can fix the sin problem. It is so pervasive, it is so deep into our lives, that it affects absolutely every part of our life, And you and I struggle with this sin problem in ways that we don't necessarily understand and can't even see, but it's there. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? When you hear someone say, just follow your heart, say, wrong. I'm not going to follow my heart because my heart is desperately sick. Other translations would say desperately wicked. Your heart will lead you astray. Follow the Word of God. The sin problem is so pervasive that when Paul was dealing it, dealing with it in his writings to the church, to the churches from Rome, or to the church in Rome rather, he paraphrases several parts of the Psalms and he puts together this collection in explaining the sin problem. He says in Romans 3, 10 through 18, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Zero. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is no one who, none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this is absolutely true of the wicked who know nothing about the law of God, have no, have no sense of His presence or His desire in their life, but these words were also spoken about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And this is what constituted the severity of the sin problem in their lives. The sin problem is universal And it is severe, but notice what John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now this is not teaching universal salvation. Universalism does not exist. Not all are going to enter into the pearly gates at the day their physical life ends. But only those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we're not talking about a universal salvation here. John is talking about a singular provision for a worldwide problem, and that is the problem of sin. You know, our world is is inundated with the disease of cancer. You know, I don't think there's a person that lives in this world that does not know someone 
who has died or is dying from cancer or who has been miraculously saved from cancer. Most of us have someone in our family that has suffered at the hands of this disease. But this dreadful disease of cancer pales in comparison to the disease of sin because the disease of sin, if not covered at the cross at Calvary, will lead us into an eternity separated from God in what the Bible calls hell. If I die from cancer, but go on to live in eternity in the presence of God, I'm okay with that. But to die with cancer and be ushered into the lack of God's presence for all eternity, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I don't want any part of that. And that's the problem for those who have not been covered through the blood of the Lamb. To this worldwide epidemic of sin, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. It's the last part of verse 30. For the third time, John stresses his, John the Baptist stresses his subordinate role to Jesus. He says, This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. Though John was actually born before Jesus, and even though John the Baptist began his ministry before Jesus, John the Baptist clearly recognizes that he is a nobody as compared to Jesus the Messiah. The eternal Word has become a man. And John the Baptist acknowledges that Jesus' higher rank is infinitely higher than His. He is the one who has created everything, including John the Baptist. He says in verse 31, I did not recognize Him, meaning that John the Baptist was not expecting that Jesus, his cousin, to become the Messiah, but so that He might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So even though there was some kind of relationship there, because the mothers were sisters, or the mothers were related, he still did not recognize him as the Messiah until he baptized him and saw the Spirit of God descending upon him and resting upon him. And that is when John recognized this is the one. For the most significant of all John's baptisms, he declared this very simple truth. I came baptizing in water. But this is the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only rested on those whom God anointed as a spokesman for Him. The prophets were anointed. Other select individuals were anointed with the Holy Spirit. But at the coming of Jesus, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would indwell all who would believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. John the Baptist testifies in verse 32 saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. And that sign that John the Baptist saw was a supernatural proof that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know that anybody else saw that, but John the Baptist saw it. And there was no doubt in his mind who Jesus was, that He was the one to whom the nation of Israel had long been waiting for. Verse 33, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That was the message that God the Father gave to John the Baptist about the Messiah. 
So John the Baptist understood who Jesus truly was, but only through the divine revelation from the Father. John the Baptist reinforces that Jesus is far greater than he is because John the Baptist baptizes in water, but Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So for the sixth time in his Gospel, John the Apostle refers to John the Baptist's witness to the Christ, saying in verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So it's a fitting conclusion to the second day and this second group and the second emphasis. The first emphasis is prepare your hearts. The Messiah is here. The second emphasis is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we come to the third emphasis here. Third day, third group. The third emphasis in what we're going to see in our passage. We're going to read together in closing, verses 35 through 37. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and behold, excuse me, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Well, who are these disciples? Who are these that John the Baptist is speaking to from the other gospel accounts? They're very likely the disciples, Andrew and John, the writer of this gospel account. They've followed John the Baptist. They've listened to his teaching. They've heard what he has testified about this one. And they said, I'm going to follow him. That's the emphasis here. The emphasis is to follow Jesus. Each of these three emphases speak to salvation in some way. The Messiah is here. He is And he is alive. The second emphasis, behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He was a perfect and a permanent sacrifice for sin. And his eventual resurrection would conquer sin and death and remove from us our bondage to sin, thus taking away our sin. The third part of this Salvation message here is to very simply follow Him. The only reasonable response, the only way to be saved, is to follow Jesus. That's not works salvation. That's not following some kind of religious doctrinal position or aspiring to some great moral life. It is submitting yourself to Him as your Lord and walking and living your life in obedience to Him. Salvation requires that we follow the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Before we observe communion, and I just want to tell you that communion is open to all who are professing believers in Jesus Christ. You don't need to be a member of our church. But before we observe these elements and this reminder of what God has done for us, let's sing together, Behold the Lamb. As you're standing, would you pray with me, please? Father, we can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like to stand in the shadow of John the Baptist and to hear the words that he proclaimed. to see the looks in the faces of people whose lives were being changed as they were waiting for the promised Messiah to come. 
But Father, we can recognize the need that they had. They recognized how futile religion was in fixing the sin problem. Father, we acknowledge before you today that our need is great. We thank you that you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for the perfect and the permanent provision you've made for our sin at the cross. God, would you deepen that reality into our hearts in such a way that we could not possibly leave here without considering who you are and what you've done, that we would not be humbled and be willing to live a life of gratitude that you're taking the penalty for our sin on yourself so that we can be cleansed and made acceptable to God. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.